is where we'll be. And uh, we, uh, there for a while we were having people read scripture and I kind of gotten away from that. So we're going to try to kind of get that going again uh, today. And so uh, I've asked uh, Miranda Hill if she would uh, be our reader this morning. So if you would, as she gets ready to read, would you please stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for this, your word. Father, we need to wake up. Help us to see that we are in a battle, that there's a war raging, and that, Father, we have a part to play in that war. Thank you that your son Jesus has defeated and defanged Satan. So help us to get in the fight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we looked at Revelation chapter 11. And what we saw was the mission of the church between the ascension of Christ back to heaven and the return of Jesus to come and get his church. And so what we said is that the church, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, carrying the weapons of the gospel and prayer, continue to advance the kingdom no matter what Satan throws at us. That we will come under attack, we will be persecuted, but we're measured, we're marked off, we're, we're numbered by the Father and he will protect us. And that there are going to be times that it appears as if Satan has won, as if Satan has defeated us, but God's church cannot and will not be defeated. And Jesus will return and call his church to himself and will worship Jesus forever. Now, I want you to, to imagine with me that, that you're in a war room, right? That, that you walk into this room and you got armies and you got the commanders and you got generals and, and on the wall you have screens, and on those screens are, are different images. So on, on one screen, you, you've got this satellite image that, that shows you the view from 30,000 feet, right? You can see the, the terrain and the contours of the earth and all those things, right? And then on this other screen, you've you got this, this view of a drone. And, and although it's, it's a little more detailed, it's still kind of pulled out a little bit. And then on another screen, you've got the, the body camera footage of, of a soldier who's, who's on the ground. And so you're getting a, a really close-up view of what's happening, aren't you? You're, you're seeing the enemy. You're seeing the whites of their eyes, so to speak. And you're seeing details in, in that screen that you can't see in the other two screens. This is what Revelation chapter 12 and 13 is teaching us. It's, it's showing this cosmic war that we find ourselves in, and it's, it's giving us this satellite view. Chapter 12 is going to give us a satellite and a drone view of this war that's been raging for centuries. 
Now there's two main divisions in the book of Revelation. So chapter one through 11 are one division, chapter 12 through 22 are the other. So this is kind of the natural break in the book. And so the first half of the book is what it does is it, it shows the, the conflict between the church and the world and all the, the difficulty that comes at us uh, as a church as we, uh, as, we, as we try to advance the kingdom of God. Chapter 12 through 22 ultimately shows us the one who's behind the conflict, the person who's leading this charge against God's church. And so chapter 12, as James Hamilton tells us, he says the theme of chapter 12 is very simple. Satan wants to accuse us before God, but Jesus has defanged him. That's why we titled this sermon Defanged. So look with me, if you will, in chapter 12, verses 1 through, through 6. Remember, it's not chronological. It's not uh, on a timeline. It's, it's not what happens next. It's what John sees next. And so in verse 12, verse 1, it says, And a great dragon, a great sign, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So what John sees next is the vision of a woman. Right, and it's kind of a bizarre image. So think about it. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet, and she's got a crown of twelve stars. And this woman is pregnant, and she's crying out in pain in the in the pains of of birth. Now, right away, all of us go, "Well, that's Mary, right? This is Mary." He's describing Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what I want you to know is, it is, but it isn't. All right, it is, but it isn't. She, she's in the background. She's part of this vision, but it's not just about her. So in Genesis chapter 37, verse nine, this is Joseph talking about Joseph. It says, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So from this point on throughout the Old Testament, this is used to describe Israel. Right? The sun would be Joseph's father, Jacob, right? The moon would be his mother. And the 11 stars bowing down to him in the middle would be his 11 brothers, he being the 12th, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. So what John's trying to get you and I to see is that the woman is symbolic of both Israel, the community of faith that birthed the Messiah, that produced the Messiah, right? The scaffolding that was put up so that the Messiah would have a vehicle to be born into the world, and the church the community of faith that follows and obeys the Messiah. So he wants you to see that there's a continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, that they are one body of believers. And the woman is pregnant. She's suffering birth pangs. So, so what this represents is the longing and the anticipation of the Messiah's birth on the part of the Old Testament community of faith. Right? Go back, read the Old Testament. It's there. This longing that the promised one from Genesis 3.15 would be born into the world to save people uh, from all of their suffering and all of their pain. But what is also happening here is that this is symbolic of the persecution of God's people leading up to the birth of the Messiah. 
So that Greek word there that's translated birth pains is the same word used to describe the suffering of God's people by punishment, by trial, by persecution, by torment, and ultimately all those things, it's used to describe all those things by, by, by demons, right? Satan. Nowhere in the Bible is that word used just to describe birth. So this woman is representing the entire community of believers, and then suddenly what do we see happen? We see a, another sign. Verse three, behold a great red dragon, seven heads, 10 horns in his head, and on his head, seven diadems. So we're told in verse nine that this, this dragon is Satan. Seven heads, 10 horns, right? Seven and 10, complete numbers. So this emphasizes the fullness of this dragon's oppressing power and his false claim to complete sovereignty. Remember, Satan's a counterfeit. He just tries to counterfeit everything that God does. So he's trying to say, look, I've got all power. I've got all authority, right? Hence the seven and the 10. The seven diadems or crowns most likely represent earthly kingdoms, earthly rulers that Satan has worked through throughout history to persecute God's people. The sweeping of the stars of the sky, it's a reference. Remember, everything in Revelation has already been said in the Old Testament. It's just a repurposing of Old Testament metaphors. Daniel 8:10. it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled them. So what this is references is specifically the persecution of God's people under Antiochus Epiphanes, the great Greek Seleucid ruler who you read about in the historical book of Maccabees. If you read anything about Antiochus, he was crazy. He persecuted God's people. He murdered God's people. So the point of this is to indicate that Satan has always been behind the attacks of God's people. Satan is a murderer. And so this dragon here is standing before this pregnant woman and he's waiting for her to give birth to a vulnerable baby so that he can devour her offspring. Now that's a clear allusion to Genesis 3.15, is it not? Right after Adam and Eve sinned, what did God promise? Joe read it earlier, that I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the moment that promise was made, Satan made it his mission to make war against the seed of the woman. And it starts all the way in the book of Genesis. So what happens? Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, right? They have a baby. Actually, they have two, Cain, Abel. Cain kills Abel, Cain is banished. It looks as if the serpent's already won. But then Eve has Seth. Seth is born. Seth grows up. Seth has kids. But then the serpent whispers in the ears of Seth's sons that they have to marry the daughters of Cain. They do. Humanity becomes corrupt. And it looks like the serpent is one again. Because Genesis six twelve tells us, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It goes on to say that God was sorry that he even made man. So we think, oh man, he's one again. The serpent got him. But nope. We learn of a man named Noah and God says he was righteous and he obeyed him and God saves him and his family. Then we come to Abraham and it looks like the dragons won again because we have Sarah, we have Abraham. They're hundred years old. They can't have babies. Everybody knows you can't have a baby at hundred years old, right? You know that, right? I mean, we're good, right? Okay. But, but God does the impossible and what happens at hundred years old, Isaac is born. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They end up in Egypt. And once again, it looks like we're in trouble because in Egypt, a new Pharaoh rises and he begins to persecute God's people. In fact, this Pharaoh says, hey, why don't you kill all the, un, all the baby boys? Murder them, get rid of them. 
And it looks like Satan's won again, but God intervenes again, saves a baby named Moses. Moses grows up to lead God's people from Egypt. Once they get out of Egypt and into the desert, the people act a fool, right? And God's ready, like, hey, just hold me back, right? Kind of like me this morning, just hold me back right now. I'm a little upset, okay? Hold me back. Some of you know what I'm talking about. God's like, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to wipe them all out. But Moses stands in between the people and God, pointing us to a greater mediator who is to come, and God relents. And so out of the people in the desert who are saved, God chooses a family from which the promised one would descend. Who is that? tribe of Judah. More specifically, it's the family of David. And Satan begins to attack David right off. 1 Samuel 19.10, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, right? He wasn't trying to scare him. He was trying to run him through, pin him to the wall. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the, so he stuck the spear into the wall, and David had fled and escaped into the night. The reason we find out Saul did that is why? An evil spirit. Satan's behind the attacks on God's people. David escapes Saul another time, and God continues to pet, protect his people. Then we find out of uh, Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel. She tries to destroy all the line of David. If you remember in 2 Kings, she's going to wipe them all out because she's angry at them. And she thought she was successful. And it looks as if Satan was one, but in 2 Kings 11, verses 1, 2, 3, we read, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Isaiah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Isaiah, took Joash, the son of Isaiah, stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom, and thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. Once again, Satan thinks he's won. But God protects the seed of the woman, right? He's still doing his thing. So he protects his promise. Then the nation of Israel combines forces with Syria. Remember, the kingdom gets split. You have Judah uh, in the north. You got everybody else in the south. The kingdom gets split, right? King Ahaz thinks he's going to come up and wipe out Judah along with other kingdoms. And he's going to set up a foreign government and a puppet government. And he's going to go in there and he's going to kill them. So God sends the prophet Isaiah to encourage and to try to talk Ahaz down. But Ahaz won't listen. He's arrogant. He's cocky. And so God says, hey, tell him this, Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he looks at him and he says, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words, Ahaz, you're not going to do it. You can't stop it. You can't stop what's coming. Then we come to King uh, Azurius, and he issues a decree that all Jews be killed. But what happens? You have a woman named Esther who dares stand before the king, and she saves the lives of all of God's people. And the final act of this drama happens in Bethlehem. As the virgin gives birth, the wise men a few years later come to see him. Herod, worried about this king, right? Thinking that this king is going to take his place, asks the wise men, hey, listen, uh, yeah, when you come back, why don't you just swing back through here? We'll have some coffee. You can tell me where the king is, right? I just want to go see him. No big deal. But God warns the wise men and says, don't go back. He's going to kill this baby. And so they go back a different way. And so Herod has all the baby boys killed. But once again, God intervenes. Joseph takes his family. They flee to Egypt. His son is saved. And once again, the serpent failed. See, the serpent to this day is still waging war against the woman and her offspring. You know that, right? It's called abortion. If Satan can destroy women and destroy children, he will do it. Satan hates women. Satan hates children. We talked about this in members class today. One of the primary ways he does it is through bad dads, through weak, passive fathers who allow their families to be attacked. 
Satan hates women. He hates children. He will do anything he can to stop this. He's not stopped waging war on them. But verse five, look what it says. It shows us the ministry of Jesus. And I love how quickly John moves through it. She gave birth to a male child. That's Jesus. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So it shows us the ministry of Jesus. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus defeated Satan. He fulfilled Psalm 2, 9 that says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then he returned to his place beside the Father, and God then protects his church. Right? The woman represents the church. She's taken to a place where she's protected, right? And she is in this wilderness place from the ascension of Christ all the way to his return. So 1,260 days, just referring to a period of 42 months. It's just a period of suffering. It's just a period of trial. And what God wants you to see is that you're in the wilderness. Don't get comfortable there. This isn't your home, right? You're not meant to be at home here. Peter would say that we're strangers, we're exiles, we're foreigners, we're aliens in this world. And he's just saying that, that this is not the land of promise. We're on our way to something better, right? Verse seven, um, Miranda read this just a little bit ago. Let me get a drink. This corn, corn's got me off, okay? Verse seven, now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angel fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So verse seven does not refer to the first rebellion of Satan, but rather what happened as a result of the first coming of Jesus. So when Jesus began his ministry, Right? The minute he was born, the minute he, he grew up and he began to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, Satan's reign was effectively over. It was done. So remember, when Jesus sent out the 72, right? And he sent them out two by two, two witnesses. We talked about that last week to proclaim the gospel. And they came back saying, hey man, people believed what we had to say. People trusted in the good news of the kingdom. What did Jesus tell them? Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. At that moment, it was over. It was effectively done. In John 12, 31, Jesus speaking of the power of his death says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So the cross and the resurrection defeated Satan. He was thrown down is what it says, right? The Greek word there is bounced. I love that. Right? Satan was bounced out of heaven, right? It was like a big fight and he got bounced like, by, like, a, like a bouncer. Like, I love that. Like, that's funny. Satan got bounced out of heaven. That's great. And it doesn't mean like this literal or spatial or, or geographical place for him in heaven. It just means, and listen to this, he can no longer stand before God and accuse you and I. That's awesome. See, we know from Job chapter one that at one point in time, Jesus, that Satan could enter the throne room. Could he not? And in Job chapter one, it says that he stands before the people. He accuses the people before God. And hear me, 
Before Jesus, his accusations had merit, didn't it? I mean, under the law, we're all in trouble. We can't obey the law. Part of the reason we were given the law was to show how awful we are and how we cannot fulfill the law on our own. So Satan at one time could go in and say, hey, yeah, you know, God, that, that guy, yeah, that girl yeah, that you love so much, yeah, they're full of lust. But they're liars, they're, cheat, they're cheating on their taxes, right? I mean, they're, they're terrible people. And listen, it had some merit to it, didn't it? God could say, yeah, you're right. There's merit to those accusations, yes, Satan, but now, because of Jesus, when Satan tries to request an audience, it's as if Jesus is standing there going, get out of here, right? Get out of this house. You have no business here. You have no reason to bring accusations before those people because I paid for everything. Leave. If you're in Christ, you've been declared not guilty. That's Romans 8.1, right? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan has been defanged because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? That's good news. But because of that, look what he's doing now. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down or that he had been bounced out of heaven, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to, help, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan's a lunatic, guys. He's a crazy person. He's lost. He knows he's lost. And now he is going to rain down as much destruction as he possibly can before the final trumpet blasts. So in 1944, after the Allied troops landed in Normandy, World War II was over, guys. I mean, it was done. And listen, Hitler's men knew it. Go back and read. His advisors were like, oh, this isn't good, man. I mean, it's over. It's done. They, they should have never got that beachhead, but they got it. This thing's over. And they tried to get Hitler to negotiate, but Hitler was crazy. He was a lunatic. And instead, what did he do? He launched the V2 rocket campaign. And he rained down destruction on the cities of England. He knew it was over, but he was going to take as much of them with him as he could before it was officially done. Verse 17, or excuse me, uh, verse 12 tells us that Satan knows his time is short. He knows he's limited. So now, what does he do? He wages war on the woman and her offspring. So he couldn't get to Jesus. Now he's going to come after the church. But again, says God is protecting and preserving his church in the wilderness, right? That he carries them on wings of eagle. Now listen, some people say this is an allusion to America, the wings of eagle. Please don't go there. Please don't, all right? Hal Lindsey in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, said that this was an allusion to the United States of America bringing a flotilla over to try to save and rescue Jewish people. Now maybe, okay, but I read one commentator that said he better be glad that Ben Franklin didn't get his way and that the national bird wasn't the turkey. How many times in the Old Testament did God say, I covered you as a mother eagle? I carried you on eagle's wings. In other words, just symbolizing God's protection of his people. And so God brings his people, the church, into the wilderness, right? Where he protects us for a time, times, and half time. 
right? The world isn't our home. Don't get comfortable. But listen to me, while you and I wait for Jesus, I need you to understand this. Satan is a lunatic. Satan will do all he can to destroy God's people, and he's going to take as many of them with him as he can. He says he's making war on the offspring of the woman. That's those of us who hold to and keep the testimony of Jesus. So if you're a believer in this room, that's you. He hates you. He wants nothing more to destroy you, to destroy your life, to destroy your family. And so what you need to see, and listen to me, everybody, you and I are in a war. We're in a fight. Some of us need to wake up. We're in a war. And this war's been going on since the beginning of time, a war that has already been won, okay? Back to D-Day. It was already over when they landed. But there were some bloody, nasty battles that they had to go through until we got to V-Day and victory was declared. So it's the exact same thing with us. Jesus has already defanged him. He's already won, but he is gonna wage as much war on us as possible until it's over. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid, so many of us are asleep when it comes to this fight. And that's why God sent me is to wake you up this morning, okay? We've got to wake up. I want you to see something, that Satan has three great weapons he's using. Three great weapons that he's using, and you and I need to be aware of these weapons. The first is deceit. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. And what does it say? He's the deceiver of the whole world. Satan loves to lie and to deceive you. And so what he does is he loves to come up to you and he loves to whisper. And what he tells you is this, you've got all the time in the world. You've got all the time in the world. Don't don't live your life with any sense of urgency. You've got all the time in the world. Hey, it's okay. Just stay in bed. I know it feels good. Just nap a little bit longer. Just lay down. You've got all the time in the world. You have all the time in the world. And what he does is he lulls us to sleep. And I think the longer we're Christians, the more lulled we get to sleep, don't we? We think we're okay, we're in the church, everything's great, and we just forget that there's this war raging, that there's a fight going on right now. And so Satan comes and he says, hey, listen, listen, you got plenty of time to get your act together. Don't worry about high school. Don't, don't get your act together. Wait till college, right? And then he comes to college, he's like, hey, don't worry about college. You can get your act together after college, right? Find a nice girl, get married. And then maybe you can get your act together. But then he goes, well, wait, wait till you have the kids. Wait till the kids get here. Right? And so you're thinking, well, I'll just wait till the kids get here and I'll get my act together. But then the kids get here and you're like, well, but the kids got all this stuff. And so I need to take all my kids stuff and make it more important than God's stuff. And so I'm going to go pursue all my kids stuff. And then after the kids get out of the house, then, then I'll take it seriously. And before you know it, you're 65 years old and you've never taken your faith seriously because Satan has deceived you and lulled you to sleep. Satan deceives us because one of the things he's done to all of us, right? So don't be that person and be like, he doesn't do this to me. No, he does it to you. I don't care how old you are. He's numbed us with media, right? Baby boomers, I'm talking to you. I'm never on Facebook. No, you're on Facebook all the time, right? That's my mother-in-law. She's like, I'm never on there. But then you get on there and she's liked everything for the past three hours, right? (laughs) Like, Like, that's the truth, okay? Baby boomers, I'm talking to you. Our phones, Netflix, TikTok, all those things have numbed us to the world around us. We don't care about others anymore. And what we do, and Satan deceives us because he's like, hey, you don't need others. You you don't need others. Hey, you don't need community. You don't need a Sunday school class. You don't need a small group. You don't need a group of men that hold you accountable. And so what you do is you pull away, you isolate, and you put yourself on an island. And when he does that, he's taking you out of the fight. 
can't fight alone, right? We think we can, but we can't. Satan's a deceiver, right? One more, okay? Here, you ready for this? one's a good one. He deceives you in thinking the Democrats are the problem. Now, now they may be. I'm not arguing that. But so many of you, you've turned your attention to fighting the Democrats and fighting through politics that you're so consumed thinking, oh man, the ballot box, getting the right guy, that's gonna change everything. How's that working out for you? Listen, I'm not saying politics aren't important. I'm not saying we don't vote the right way. We should. Yes and amen. We need good candidates, but hear me on this. That's not how we win. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, well, you're going to win by getting an all-Republican legislature and all-Republican Senate and all these Supreme Court justices that you want. Nowhere is it. And what he does is he's like, hey, those guys are the problem instead of forgetting, oh, no, wait, Satan's the problem. I mean, Satan's the reason we got politics, right? We wouldn't have that demonic stuff if it wasn't for him. See, Satan's the one behind all of this, but he deceives us. And he gets us to buy the lies. Right? The second weapon he uses is accusation. Look at verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Now, I'm really thankful for Matt Chandler for this insight because it helped me out a lot. But one of the things he talks about is that there's not a person in this room, not one of you in this room, who in your past is not something where either something was said about you, something was done to you, maybe a label was pronounced over you that from time to time you don't go back to and go, yeah, that's true about me, right? Parents, we, we all fail our children, don't we? No, like, no matter how good of parents we are, there's just areas that we're gonna fall short because we're not perfect. And so sometimes we wound and we hurt our children right? And there's wounds left in their heart. Maybe you just had a past that was lived in, in sin and licentiousness, and there's shame from that. And let me tell you something. Satan's favorite weapon is to bring that junk back up over and over and over again because he wants to paralyze you. He wants you to believe the lies so that he can then take you out of the fight. See, right? When he comes and he whispers the lies and you go, yeah, you're right, Satan. You're paralyzed. You're done. You're out of the fight. Freeze tag. You can't go nowhere until somebody tags you again, right? Right? And just in case you, you don't believe me and you're saying, well, that's not me. Okay, let me just be real honest with you. I got one. Byron, you're stupid. I grew up hearing that. I grew up being treated like a joke. Byron, graduated high school. Oh my gosh, he did it. I don't know how he did it. Like if you told somebody today he actually went to college and got a degree, they'd be like, he's not working at McDonald's there in Delhart? Like I thought that's where I saw him last and that was laid over me by people in my life. I remember saying, hey, I'm called to the ministry and having a pastor come, well, Byron, everybody's called to the ministry, right? And let me tell you something, he brings that junk back up all the time. And I believe it over and over and over again. And let me tell you something, when I believe it, and I do more than I wish I did, he wins. I spiral I go into depression, I lock down, I shut down, I take myself out of the fight. And it happens to all of us at some point, does it not? Let me give you some more. He loves to level these accusations at us. Well, I can't pray, Byron. Why? Well, I, I can't read my Bible. Why well, can't evangelize, Byron? And we listen to the lies. 
So when he says, yeah, you can't pray, you go, yeah, you're right, I can't pray. You're taken out of the fight. I can't read my Bible, yeah, you're right, you can't. You're taken out of the fight. So let me just tell you a few things. First off, you can pray. Dear God, I can't pray, I just prayed for you. Look at there. See how easy that was? Prayer's just talking to God. You have conversations every day. You can pray. But the minute you say, well, I can't pray, Satan goes, see, told you so, and he takes you out of the fight. You can read your Bible. Pick it up and read it. But when you say, I can't read the Bible, he wins and he takes you out of the fight, right? It's hard to understand. Well, you just bought the lie. You can ask others for help. But wait, we've already bought the lie that we don't need other people, so then we just kind of isolate, we pull ourselves back going, well, if I tell somebody I don't understand the Bible, they're gonna think I'm an idiot. No, they're not. Just ask for help. But you keep buying the lie, right? Okay, what about this one? I can't evangelize, Byron, I can't. I can't tell people about Jesus. Well, hey, tell you what, tell me about your fantasy team today. Who do you got? Tell me about Dak's numbers from last week, right? Tell me about the Texas Tech Chiefs, I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. Tell me about his numbers. Tell me about your favorite college football team. Tell me about that game you watched yesterday, right? Tell me why you hate Biden so bad. You can list me reason after reason after reason for all those things. We're all evangelists, it's just what we're evangelizing about. You can evangelize, it's, choose, it's just that you choose to evangelize about other things. See, Satan loves to accuse you and to take you out of the fight. And when he says those things and you agree with it, you give power to the lie, right? So he deceives us, he accuses us, and then look, here's the third one, look at verse 15. It says that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, that's the church, to sweep her away with a flood. So most scholars believe that this is an allusion to false teaching. So the third weapon he loves to use is false teaching. So when the church buys false teaching, Satan takes another believer, he takes another church and he takes them out of the fight. And every generation has some form of false teaching. They have a new version of false teaching. Our current version is just called deconstruction. Now you've heard that word, right? I'm deconstructing my faith. And what deconstruction is, is it goes just like this. Well, did God really mean what he said about gender roles? I mean, did he? I mean, I, mean, I know when Paul wrote the Bible back then, there was this stuff with women, but God, did, did God really mean what he said about men preachers, not women preachers? Like, did, did God really... Did, did God really mean what he said when he talked about sexuality? I mean, did he? Did he? In church, I'm not just talking about LGBTQ issues, right? Because immediately there you go, Democrats. No, no, no. I'm talking about heterosexual couples as well. 58% of white evangelicals and 70% of black Protestants believe cohabitating is acceptable if a couple plans to marry. Show me where that's in the Bible. But yet you keep doing it and he takes you out of the fight because you buy the lie. The teaching of scripture is consistently clear is that God set aside the, the, the sacrament, or the, not, excuse me, the sacrament, the, the, the thing of sex for, for marriage between a man and a woman. See, God's clear on this stuff. But when we buy false teaching, we say, well, that's a little old school, God. Come on, things have changed. Times have changed. And then when you do that, you're just Thomas Jefferson taking scissors to the Bible and cutting out what you don't like. He did that, by the way, if you don't know that, go look it up. He cut out everything in the Bible he didn't like. It's called the Jefferson Bible, you can, you can Google it. 
And see, when we cut stuff out of the Bible, we create a God that looks like us. We make a God in our image and in our likeness. False teachings creeping in through the garbage our kids are ingesting. One of the primary ways he's doing it is through TikTok right now. Get mad at me, that's fine. There ain't nothing on that that's edifying, guys. And because we haven't taught them anything about what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus, right? Because again, Satan deceives us and here's what he does. He goes, hey, 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 listen, shh, shh, hey, don't worry about the Bible. Byron and Joe will take care of that. Hey, let Byron and Joe teach your kids. They got this, right? You don't worry about the Bible. And we buy that lie. And when you do that, you say, it's not my responsibility. And then we believe the false teaching and guess what? He's taking you out of the fight. And not just you, he takes your family out of the fight too. Listen, guys, we gotta wake up. We gotta wake up. We're in a fight. And this fight will not be over until Jesus returns. Satan hates you. Satan hates your family. Satan hates this church. And he will do everything he can to hurt us and to destroy us. So we have to fight. But thankfully, God shows us how to fight, doesn't he? I love that he doesn't just leave us hanging out there. We're like, how do I fight? Look at verse 11. Talking about us, the church, they've conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So in other words, we fight, and the first weapon we fight with is the gospel. That's what the blood of the lamb is. So this is done when we stand on the truth of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We fight when we stand on the truth of Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were once dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Sam Storm says, simply put, Satan's only hope for victory in your life is the presence of unforgiven sin. But Christ's blood cleanses us from the condemning power of guilt incurred by our sin and thus forever removes any and all grounds on which Satan might have a legal basis for launching his attack. He's been defanged. He's been defeated. So think of it like this. I've already said it. When Satan tries to stand before God, Jesus is standing there all big and buff and bad going, get out of here. Your lies have no place here. I paid for their sins. I shed my blood. I've covered them and you have no power. You toothless, impotent dragon be gone. That's good news. The second weapon, right? So we fight with the gospel, but the second weapon is we overcome by the word of our testimony. So, so this starts with proclaiming our identity in Christ. So when the serpent shows up and he starts whispering, hey, hey, you remember this, you remember that, you remember who you are, you remember what they said about you, right? When he starts saying you're a liar, you're full of lust, you're full of hate, hey, remember your past? When he says, hey, you can't pray, you can't read the Bible, you can't evangelize, you can't lead a small groups, the only way he wins is what? Is when you agree with the lie. So when he shows up, Instead, you stand firm on the word of the testimony. You look right at him and say, that's not what the word says. That's not what this book tells me I am. That's not who he says that I am. There's a reason we sang that song today, right? That's why. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you tell him, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old has passed away, Satan, the news come. I'm not that person anymore. 
You tell him Ephesians 2, 5 through 8, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, uh, Christ made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages uh, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You tell him, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Remind yourself that he chose the weak to shame the strong. Remind yourself that he chose the foolish to shame the wise, right? Read the Bible. It's like God walked out on the pickup basketball court and goes, all right, I want the fattest, the most worthless, the slowest guys on the court. Yeah, I want him, 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 her, 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 her. Yeah, we're gonna go out here and we're gonna win, right? It's like he picked the worst players and he says, we're gonna win. So it means that we worship. It means that we sing songs to God. It means that we remind ourselves who God says we are. We pray. That means talking to God. It means fellowshipping with him. And listen, when we do that, man, Satan can whisper all he wants, but he has no power. Tell him to get that garbage out of here. Get that trash out of here, Satan. And then finally, look what he says. He says, we, we conquer by not loving our lives even unto death. Have I said this yet? We have to wake up. We are in a fight. And this fight is only gonna get more and more intense as the day draws near, as the day draws near, sorry. So we have to wake up because the time is short. So when we, uh, we overcome, when we love Jesus more than our earthly welfare, more than our earthly pleasures, more than earthly convenience, more than peace, more than prosperity. So it means that we give up the good things for the sake of better things that the willingness to sacrifice all in this life, even our own lives, because our most valuable thing is in our life, that we would rather die than yield one inch of our hearts to Satan. See, Satan only wins when we love our lives more than God. Satan only wins when we cherish anything more than Jesus. So when you prioritize your life so that nothing means more to you than Jesus, then listen, you deprive Satan of any legal right in your heart or your mind. So in other words, if Revelation 12, 11 is your life, what can Satan latch hold of? It's like a slippery pole, man. He can't grab nothing. Nothing sticks, right? He can't do anything. So if Christ covered it, you can't condemn me, Satan. I know what the word says. I know what it says I am. Get your trash out of here. Kill me? That's fine. I get to go be with Jesus. Gonna let me live? Well, I'll just keep holding on to Jesus. Wake up, guys. We're in a fight. The outcome's been decided, but there's some bloody battles to fight, and we've gotta be a people that are willing to fight. So listen to me. Do you know Jesus today? Have your sins been covered by the blood of the Lamb? If not, they can be. You can say, I walked in here non-believer, but today because of Jesus, I'm different, I'm changed, my past is behind me. Grab a friend, grab Joe, grab me. We would love to talk to you about that. So if you're a Christian, listen, what ways are you allowing Satan to lie and accuse you? He's been defanged. He has no power. He's been conquered by the blood of the lamb. Tell him that over and over again. Today, remember the gospel. Remember God's word and fight back with what it says you are. And finally, listen, may we be a church that loves our lives, not even unto death. That we would say, man, if you're gonna kill me, that's great. I get to go be with Jesus, so come on. 
We're in a fight. We have to wake up. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to do something just a little bit different today. Mariah and Carol are going to come back up, and, and Mariah's just going to sing a song over you. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. If you want to read the words and sing along, it's such an easy, simple song to read. But the song's called Soon. And it's just reminding us that soon and very soon, our king is coming. It's to try to wake us up this morning and realize we're in a fight and the time is short. So Father, I love you and I thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for the weapons of grace that you've given us to fight back against the accuser, against the lies of Satan. Father, that we overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, his death, his resurrection. We overcome by the word of our testimony by saying that's not what the word says I am, that I'm a child of God, that I'm loved, I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm not forsaken, I'm cared for. And that, Father, we overcome by loving our lives, not even to the point of death, that we say, listen, I'm gonna run as hard as I can for Jesus, and if you kill me, then you kill me. I get to be with Jesus. So I pray that that word would be a comfort to our hearts today. That although we're in a war, we're in a war that you've already won. So help us set our eyes on you because soon and very soon, one day, you will be coming to get us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.